Dot.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more. Check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And we're here to talk about the tiniest superhero in the universe. Ooh. That is, of course, Spider-Man. Not quite yet. Oh, then it's the other bug. Uh, Black Widow. Maybe in terms of screen time, the smallest. Okay, wait, then... I know. It's Wasp-Man. I'm gonna come over there. Okay, so it's Ant-Man, the movie that's so fascinating it took multiple production teams. Yeah, it definitely took a team full of people to write this movie, apparently. Which is weird because in so many ways, as much as I enjoy it and as much as I had a good time watching it and as much as I enjoy it every time I watch it, I kind of walk away from this movie with absolutely nothing. I walk away with liking the characters that it introduces, but the story that they play out in this film doesn't really do much for me or mean much to me. One of the things that I think gets me the most about this film is that I felt like it came out of nowhere and in so many ways, it's the first of its kind for the Marvel Universe. Suddenly we're on the West Coast, and that's kind of like, okay, we're back on the West Coast, but we're kind of away from everything in the West Coast we've been part of. Mm -hmm. I feel like we spend so much time back in D.C. and at the Triskelion and all of these other New York kind of things, and we were always doing something in Sokovia or Europe, and now we're just kind of hanging out in the Bay. Yeah, but it's a nice change of change of pace, change of scenery. And I'll give you that, but I guess I just don't keep expecting it to get very everywhere you look. Nah. I mean, I don't think it got too wrapped up in its setting, which was nice. We didn't see the backdrop of San Francisco used too heavily. It is it could have been any city, which is nice. We will see it more heavily used in the sequel. And it's so weird because like, even though I just watched the first one, most of the sequel stays burned in my brain. And I kept being like, he, he does Giant Man in this one, right? When's he going to Giant Man? And Kevo had to tell me like multiple times he doesn't Giant Man in this one. No, he does not. We will get to that in Civil War. Which, not even his movie, but good for him getting power-ups in other people's movies. Because why not? Because why not? It's not like the comics where every single major thing that happens to that character should happen in their own title. Because in that case, it's a monthly thing, and sure, they're $4 now, which is way too much. But you can just kind of like hop over there. Every month there's another adventure or, you know, part one of 11 parts of the same adventure, whatever they're doing right now. You got to wait so long between Ant-Man appearances that when they can get him, if they want to give him a power-up in somebody else's movie, I don't really think they have a choice. Well, let's see. He was introduced in July 2015, came back April 2016, and then his sequel was July 2018. And we know that he appears next in Endgame. Yes, this this April now, originally May. And he is one of the few Marvel Universe characters to get side media. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. He's part of the Marvel News Front. Oh, yeah. Marvel News Front, which is another attempt at a Marvel one-shot type situation where they had backup media. They had two seasons starring Leslie Bibb once again as Christine Everhart reprising that role that she originated in Iron Man's 1 and 2 for the lead-up to Ant-Man. 
she actually interviews Scott Lang, Paul Rudd as Scott Lang, in addition to Darren Cross. The Marvel Universe has such a rich, long history of, you know, I'm going to just say it every time you say Darren Cross, I just keep being, wait, Darren Chris? Yes, every time, every time. And then I keep resetting it and I'm like, no, it's Chris Cross. Wait, no, what the fuck? And then it's never Chris Cross or Christopher Cross. It's not even Darren Star. Nice. It's just, oh God, I can't even. So like, I found this guy attractive when he was on House of Cards. And then here, I don't know. I don't know. Broadway Matthew leaves me cold. He kind of reminds me of Paul Shear. I get it. Like a real masculine, like Latino Paul Shear. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I I can get behind that or yeah, I can get behind that. But like in this instance, I guess I'm fine with it. But he is just like the most one dimensional villain in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which by the way is occasionally a pantheon of one dimensionality. He's uh, definitely pretty far up there. I have to say, early on, I was impressed by the way he used his own failing technology as a weapon. I think that was pretty resourceful. A lot of villains wouldn't even turn a failing into a weapon they could potentially use out of pride or shame. He definitely turned that guy into a booker. You know, and it was just, that was the point at which I was like, no, this is just, okay, he's just so evil. He's not even a little bit evil. He's just so evil. And it's funny because the only movie that we're going to cover, well, the only two movies that we're going to cover that I'm not going to have had a chance to have seen, digested, and then seen again are, of course, going to be Captain Marvel and Endgame because just in terms of covering them, I'm not going to have had a chance. But at the same time, I'm kind of like... I've seen this movie, and I'm still sort of like, oh, right, he makes the dude like a human wad on the ground. And they go out of their way so many times to make him look evil with the adorable little lambs, and I swear to God, they ADR'd in extra pathetic-sounding lamb noises to make us more upset that he was doing this. And then the moment when he is, you know, again, not to get ahead of ourselves, but literally, he's like, I'm gonna sell this shit to Hydra. Like, you just did everything you could to make this guy seem like the biggest douche. And... One of the things that I think the Marvel Cinematic Universe can certainly be called out on is, with the exception of perhaps Loki, there aren't too many villains that show up multiple times. In fact, Thanos doesn't even show up multiple times in his capacity as a villain. Mm. He often shows up in his capacity as cannon fodder for more movie sales. Ultimately, pre-Infinity War Thanos doesn't really matter too much. It's not really Thanos as we know him. So it's important to keep in mind that the Marvel Cinematic Universe doesn't terribly care about reusing villains. So here, having Darren Star, Christopher Cross, be this big, bad, disposable guy who just double meets everybody all over the place is, I don't know, in that point where he, like, flicks the sheep, I'm like, come on, he's literally pulling the wings off flies, well, the equivalent for this film, because I feel like this movie would have to have some sort of no insects were harmed in the making of this movie kind of thing. And before we get there, I do want to say, if you're like kind of like a bug person where you're like, oh, no, I don't want to look at bugs. I'm with you for the most part, but I do feel that they managed to strike like an almost ants. It's a bug's life. Cute realism. They're the least disturbing that you could possibly have giant bugs be. They did a really good job of articulating them and making sure they didn't look too gross or threatening. I also think that Scott's quick adaptation to them helped humanize them. For sure.
I can't think of anything else to do, Kevo, but to get to the bite-sized BTS about Ant-Man. Well, I gotta say, it sounds like a lot of the issues that we're talking about in this movie make it sound like there were multiple versions and things overlaid and inserted into this script and that definitely is the picture that i feel was painted the further i looked into this first let me get the usual cinematographer and composer stuff out of the way the cinematographer for this film russell carpenter asc which means that he is a member of the american society of cinematographers he didn't really have a lot of notable work for a while early on in his career small potatoes stuff like nightmare on elm street 5 the dream child and puppet master i'm sorry I'm pretty sure both of those are multiple award winner. No, I don't even have a joke. Wow, yeah. It's so funny when you hear where some of these people started. Like finding out that Gun Guardian started out on trauma films. I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah. And uh, he didn't really have much going on for him until he started collaborating with a small-time director known as James Cameron. He did cinematography for True Lies and then T2 3D Battle Across Time, the attraction at Universal Studios. He just really knew how to light Arnold. Yeah, I guess so. Huh, that's a really funny point. I'd love to find out this guy is like seven feet tall, so he just is like really good at lighting Arnold. He gets it. He really gets it. He gets lighting big things, which I guess is why he ended up winning an Oscar and an ASC award for Titanic. But then he goes on to light really little things. Yeah, apparently. Well, that's one of the other notable works that I saw in his filmography. He's the cinematographer for the Indian in the Cupboard movie from 1995. Remember that from our childhoods? I mean, yeah, what are we going to do about that title? We're going to have to figure something out. I'm so uncomfortable at the use of that term in the title of the book because it's just not an accurate term. So I really, I don't know what to do about that. Ugh. Anyway. It was like a period piece about a period piece about a period piece because it came out in the 80s but took place in the 60s. But the people that it brought back from the past were from like the 1880s. So like it's all super confusing. Anyway, ah, in a film that has the quantum realm. Interesting. Otherwise, this guy hasn't really done a bunch of stuff. He did both Charlie's Angels movies, the Steve Jobs movie starring Ashton Kutcher. He's going to do the next two Avatar movies but didn't do the first one. And then there might be two more after that, so hopefully he does a really good job lighting those super tall Navi people so that he can get work. Well, someone's going to have to. You know, it's one of those, I've never, I'm going to just say it, I haven't seen Avatar. Okay, yeah, I just waited for everybody to have their reactions so they didn't have to pause anything. I've just never seen Avatar. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. I would see it if it's released in theaters again, but as far as I can tell, it's just pretty, and I don't want to waste my time watching it on small screen then. I really get that. Was there anything else noticeable about Russell Carpenter, ASC cinematographer, born in 1950? Nice. Not especially. Which then brings us to <sighs> composer. I have to tell you, oh my goodness, I have actually been a fan of this composer for about 20 years, which is really wild. Christoph Beck, who got an early start doing the music for Buffy the Vampire Slayer seasons two through four. He also did the score for The Practice for season four. I thought you might like that. Oh, I sure do. It's so interesting because doesn't he come back for like sporadic things on Buffy? Yes, and actually I want to fan gush over him so bad that I'm going to do that the next time he comes up because he will also be doing the score for this film's sequel and Spider-Man Homecoming. Wait a minute, are you telling me that this guy is like... <laughs> this guy's like Marvel's musical bug man. Yes, actually, now that you point that out, that's funny. Okay, so Marvel's musical bug man, jeez. Well, he's certainly not a nobody. Uh, 
He is probably best known to most people from his highest grossing recognizable credit, Frozen from 2013. Yeah, he did it. Sorry. The music is still really pretty, so please don't hold it against him. And he's not responsible for Let It Go, so... No, not in any way. Not in any way. That was written by the other people that did the music. It's important to remember that films, uh, musicals in particular, often have a score and then also songs written by someone. In the case of Disney movies, they're not always the same people that work on the pop songs and do the score. So sometimes you might see multiple credits put on work. Please don't blame my hero. And I mean, you know, he's got a lot of other stuff in his credits as well. He did the Hangover trilogy. He did the Garfield movies, so that's embarrassing. He did the 2005 Elektra movie. He did the recent Muppet films. That's pretty cool. So, I mean, Christoph Beck has just really, he's really spanned the gamut. Yeah, he really has. And one of his earliest pieces of work was doing the score for the cheerleading film Bring It On, which was directed by this film's director, Peyton Reed. Wait a minute, Peyton Reed? I thought Ant-Man was by Edgar Wright. Yeah, about that. Well, here's the thing. A long, long time ago, Edgar Wright was going to do the Ant-Man film. In fact, it was 2003 that he originally pitched it with his writing partner, Joe Cornish. Are you telling me that Ant-Man has been a possible film since 2003? It's actually been a possible film since the 80s, but was shelved because of a very similar project coming out at the time, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. That's that movie about Rick Moranis putting on a super suit and beating up buildings, right? Wait, what are you referencing? Oh, different kind of similar. Got it. Yes. He actually oh, was- But the sequel blows up the baby! Yes, yes it does. He was actually uh, almost reached to cameo in this movie, but he is famously retired, and they were like, ah, we've got enough cameos and shit going on. It's fine. Man, so <clears throat> the first one, tiny people. The second one, blows up the baby. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, you're not wrong. I hope there's also equally good parallels between this and the Bring It Ons. Well, there are a lot of training montages, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So they wrote a treatment and submitted it to Artisan Entertainment, and they're pretty sure that Artisan Entertainment never even passed it along to Marvel because they wanted to do Scott Lang as a burglar, and Artisan wanted, like, family stuff put in it. So eventually they pitched it directly to the then head of production, Kevin Feige, and in 2006 they were hired... Wright was hired to direct and co-write with Cornish, and it just kept getting pushed back over and over and over again, until finally the official release date of July 2015 was announced in September of 2013. Finally, after multiple holds and rewrites, Edgar Wright eventually left at the 11th hour in May of 2014 due to differences in their vision of the film. He stated, I wanted to make a Marvel movie, but I don't think they really wanted to make an Edgar Wright movie, which is a really interesting statement to make. Frequent Will Ferrell collaborator Adam McKay was in talks to replace Edgar Wright for about a day, but he backed out of those talks because they're friends. Weird show of loyalty in Hollywood. And then within a week, Peyton Reed had been signed. Adam McKay instead stayed to help rewrite Edgar Wright's script with the help of Paul Rudd, because I guess rewriting your friend's script is more okay. And if I'm not mistaken, there's some like famous Hollywood kind of bullshit stuff about like Paul Rudd preferring to be the one to edit all his own final dialogue, which is maybe how all Paul Rudd characters sound the same. Mm, doesn't Will Smith do that too? 
yeah, but Will Smith is a unique case unto Will Smith's own self. That's very true. One of the weird things I found in Peyton Reed's background, by the way, is that he directed the live-action sequences for the first 13 episodes of Back to the Future, the animated series, and wrote the script for Back to the Future, the ride. Okay, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, interesting and weird. He also directed a few episodes of New Girl, just like the Russo brothers. Uh, Okay. You know, maybe that's even why the MCU has this light-hearted, ha-ha feeling to it, even though so many of the movies are so dark and sad. Because so much of the teen has such comedy background. I get that. I do. It sounds like after Adam McKay, Paul Rudd, and Peyton Reed got their hands on the script, they mostly kept the spine of Edgar Wright's original version, which was going to be this burglar thing where it was going to be Hank Pym being an older mentor to Scott Lang and passing on the torch. Some of the things that were introduced Once they took over the script, though, were an expanded role for Hope Van Dyne, an expanded look at Janet Van Dyne, the quantum realm as an element, and the fight sequence with an Avenger. A lot of the stuff with Hope was originally going to be in the film, including the mid-credits sequence where she gets her suit, setting up her appearance as the Wasp in the future, but she didn't really have a lot of stuff in the script to work with, and... After Evangeline Lilly spoke up for herself a little bit, they inserted some more things. The fight with an Avenger was actually an Adam McKay suggestion. He noted that many heist films have some sort of trial by fire before the big deal heist. And they thought, hey, why not have it be against an existing Marvel character? Famously, Kevin Feige suggested adding the element of the quantum realm. You know, mysterious. Who knows what that might lead to. And, you know, it's funny that Edgar Wright felt that Marvel didn't want to make an Edgar Wright movie because after Evangeline Lilly read the revised script, she definitely felt that this film pulled more into the MCU than Wright's original, which she said was much more in the Edgar Wright camp of films. She added that she thought his version was incredible and would have been and would have been great to watch, but it wouldn't have fit in the Marvel universe and specifically referred to it as it would have stuck out like a sore thumb no matter how good it was which is very interesting and kind of i think the fate that guardians would have suffered if the entire mcu hadn't been rejiggered around guardians itself in so many ways guardians could have been this one weird note if it had bombed we wouldn't have really come back to it we could have cut around it really truly if guardians had bombed i very much think they would have changed plans and made infinity war happen some other way yeah i agree and as we've said they might have even appeared minorly but they wouldn't have built so much around it the way that they have in fact we know that the quantum realm is going to play a role in endgame so then we have to ask ourselves if the quantum realm is going to play a role in endgame and the quantum realm wasn't even inserted into this film at the time production was intended to begin and ultimately Guardians was made before this movie. We kind of have to say, at the time they made Guardians and all the stuff they did with Thanos and Ronan, they didn't know that the Quantum Realm was going to be one of the methods that they used to defeat Thanos in Endgame. That's what we're at least assuming. We also couldn't have known that Captain Marvel was going to go where she went because just recently she was intended to be inserted between Guardians and Ant-Man. So it's so interesting to imagine how different the Edgar Wright version would have been, and it's really interesting to hear Evangeline Lilly and Edgar Wright not agree on it. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There is also another example, by the way, of how this film could have been different. You'll never guess who was a contender for Scott Lang, who was previously a contender for a different MCU hunk. Was it Zachary Levy? (laughs) Oh my god, that was funny. No, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who is a good 12 years younger than Paul Rudd. You know what? I don't know that I would have... I don't I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't either. I'm not a big comic Scott Lang fan. I'm a big comics Hank Pym fan when he's not being gross and horrible and problematic. And I think that's... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Janet all the way. Basically. Also, Hope was originally offered to Jessica Chastain, and she had to turn down the role due to scheduling conflicts. And now she gets to be terrible in Dark Phoenix. Evidently, Dark Phoenix is going to be terrible. Is she in that? Yes, but no one knows as who. Here's the most fascinating thing. They've decided to... I just can't even... No, no, it's not even fascinating. I've already taken a bunch of shots at how many times they've had to do reshoots, and every time an article comes up that's like, test audiences agree, Dark Phoenix is really not very good. And somebody always comments, old Link, no one cares, and then two seconds later, I'm like, no, 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 this is just an article you're getting used to seeing. Yeah. I'm. It's getting to the point where every time I see a new article saying that New Mutants is bad or Dark Phoenix is bad, I'm just ready to put thoughts and prayers. That is wild, and the biggest problem is the same problem that this film had, which is you can frequently tell all the fingerprints that have been put all over the movie. You know, even after Adam McKay and Paul Rudd did their take on the script, production writers Gabrielle Ferrari and Andrew Barr were brought in to do the Louise montages. They wrote, like, the scripts for those, and now those guys are the co-writers of Ant-Man and the Wasp, which came out this year. And then even after those guys came in and wrote those sequences, a Marvel writer, Eric Pearson, who you might recognize as having written most of the Marvel one-shots, came in and did further rewrites to Ant-Man. So, like, people just kept coming in and doing more stuff to it. The tiniest heroes need the longest credits. Yeah, basically. Our game is fierce and we are him, so get on back, you can't touch this. Our game is bad, we're without peer, so get that weak mess out of here. Try to steal our bit, but you look like shit, but we're the ones who are down with it. So this movie starts with somewhere the Marvel Cinematic Universe has never gone before, 1989. I love that we open on this smash cut of the Jaskalian still under construction. And we get Peggy, and we get Howard Stark, and we get guy that's not Michael McKean. Yeah, that guy. That guy who's not Michael McKean. Yeah, whatever. No one cares about that. So he's there and then he's in it later and that's really all that matters. It's really cool to see Peggy and it's really cool to see John Slattery as Howard Stark again for the first time since Iron Man 2. And as much as I love John Slattery, I would so much rather see Preacher Howard, but I'll take what I can get. No, true. I get that. This also takes place between seasons of Agent Carter, by the way. By the time Ant-Man came out, we knew there was going to be a second season of Agent Carter. Oh, I got so confused. I thought for a second that the second season of Agent Carter took place in the late 80s, and I was like, designing women hair all the way. That would be way too similar, freakily, to the Wonder Woman franchise. No, 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 no. But it would have been way before it, so... Yeah, so it would have been like a real weird time loop thing. It would have been like Peggy Carter finally had psychic powers. Speaking of weird time loop stuff, how did you feel about Michael Douglas's youth makeup? I felt about it probably the same way Catherine Zeta-Jones did. Woof, okay, fair enough. And I feel like a lot of the unaging in this movie doesn't really go well. It's... Fair enough. Do we have much to say about the opening sequence here? No, but I... I, my notes actually just say, aw, Pimsy sad, sad, Pimsy sad. So sad, Pimsy. No Janet, Pimsy sad. And then Scott Lang gets started punching for fun. 
Yeah, they're just punching his buns up in the jailhouse rock. And of course we see him on release day as he's being released because that keeps him more human. That keeps the prison time and all of the realities of what prison should be for a real person out of this film. And it keeps it kind of like the rosier, oh, Luis is here, fun, magical side of prison. This guy's name is Peaches and he's punching me in the face for fun. Prison's not that bad. You just get sad because you can't see your daughter. That's, it's, oh my God. Just not the best touch. But as I might end up saying multiple times in this episode, Paul Rudd looks great and he's 45 when he's filming this. So like, good for you, buddy. I also do find Luis very handsome. I get that. I don't disagree. And I feel like that is something I want to talk about straight up off the bat. I find it maybe a little bit problematic that the only ex-con who is not looking to go back off the path of righteousness is the one white heteronormative cis ex-con. The con who is an immigrant is totally cool to go back to a life of crime as are the characters of color and they're trying to convince Scott to get back to a life of crime. There are some real problematic things here and it's kind of right off the bat because while Luis is charming and wonderful and sweet and such a good friend, he is immediately pushing Scott back toward a life of crime. And that coming from a minority character, from a Latino, is not attractive. That's really bad stereotyping. Yeah, I really agree. And I especially didn't like when T.I.'s character of Dave calls Scott a pussy. Like, that felt really incongruous. That felt like something that we would have seen in Iron Man 1, not Ant-Man coming out in 2015. Absolutely. By now they have a franchise they're trying to protect and you just kind of maybe think they would know better. And I wonder how much of the things that we're going to complain about are remnants from Edgar Wright and how much of them are maybe from one of the 37 other people who wrote it. More people wrote this than shares believe. So I'm ready to see what happens. Yeah, basically. So then I guess we go into Hank Pym is back. Did you hear? Did you see him? Hank Pym. Hank Pym is back. Hank Pym, who hasn't been working in quite some time. Hello, Mr. Pym. Ah, Hope. Shucks, why can't you call me Dad? Dad, I told you! I just, I can't, I'm going to my room! Don't talk to me like that at work! Not that she's even like that. Not remotely, but that line of dialogue is so, so juvenile. Hope is actually really great in this. It's that a lot of the writing and exposition is pedestrian. The writing is juvenile. The writing is really rough, but I, from step one, you know, one of the things about Evangeline Lilly's Hope that is so unique, and this has to go on record, is she is predominantly a very original character. There are things about her that maybe kind of line up with things about Scott Lang's then in the comics teenage daughter, Cassie, things in common there a little bit. But Hope is a pretty original character for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And Evangeline Lilly does such a great job establishing her with a personality and perspective. And I'm a really big fan right off the bat. Yeah, especially without any background to draw from. She basically originates the role. I do not love what I can only hope is a wig that she has in this movie. The bob is not especially flattering on anyone after 1939. Yeah, nobody was looking for Pulp Fiction in this Ant-Man production, but maybe it's one of the things left over from one of the times they tried to produce it previously. Maybe, maybe. And like I said, a lot of like the weird clunky exposition stuff isn't great. Am I the only one that called from the first time we saw Hank put his keys down that that tank was not just a keychain? We were supposed to get it from the first time, right? 
If not, it's one of those things where it's it's Superman glasses effect. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Speaking of Superman glasses effect, the fact that nobody during that entire cross-presentation brought up the Iron Man suit or the War Machine suit. That was really weird, especially on the heels of Sokovia, which does later get mentioned in this film. Yeah, Hank Pym makes a real biting comment about the Avengers have to be dropping a city on someone about now. Yeah, roof stoof, but he's not wrong. I feel like we're almost discussing this movie the least focused we've discussed any of them, but I kind of think that is to Ant-Man's benefit. This movie is weirdly segmented and also weirdly all over the place, kind of like it reads like a fusion of multiple scripts. Yeah, it's very jumbled, and we're about to come into one of the segments that I think was potentially an overlay once Edgar Wright left, which is Scott Lang appearing at his daughter's birthday party. I do like that the co-parenting situation is at least positive. Bobby Cannavale's character at no point seems to be anti-Scott. He just seems to be the best interest of my family and my daughter. He is a character who seems forgiving and while it's kind of like eye-rolly that, of course, she goes from an ex-con to a cop, it's really important to note that I don't feel Judy Greer's character is at any point any kind of... She's never any of the bad negative ex-wife stuff, and they still don't get back together! Yeah, and that's always super important to someone who is the product of divorce. It It is pretty obnoxious how many stories have divorced parents just wind up back together, like... That doesn't really happen in real life very often. I love Bobby Cannavale's character of Paxton. I feel like there are times where he plays it a little bit ambiguous. I think he seems a little threatening later when he has Scott in a jail cell. But I think he was just being ambiguous. They might not have known what direction they wanted to take him. Clearly, by the end of the film, they have decided that they want a more wholesome theme Overall, and I like it. I really do. I like seeing these positive stories out there. I feel like if this had been made with a different tone, it would have probably had Scott pestering his ex-wife to get back with him. And in the end, he would have won her back if this was made in 1995. And I'm glad that we're moving past themes like that and instead showing stuff like effective co-parenting. And I think Judy Greer's character is so well developed in that she's kind of like, you get to be a dad when you do the responsible things. You can't just be fun time dad. Although it's really cool that he shows that he knows his daughter well enough to give her a gross doll that she would enjoy. And that does set up that she's okay with gross things, so giant ants don't freak her out later on. True, very true. And I definitely agree about Judy Greer's characterization when she says to Scott, you're her hero, just be the person she already thinks you are. She's clearly showing that she cares about Scott and wants him to succeed. They want him to succeed, and that's important. One of the things about Scott trying to succeed that kind of bothered me, I think it's supposed to be played up for fun, but I don't really appreciate it. That sequence at the Baskin-Robbins where he gets fired because his boss finds out about his criminal past that he left off of his application and it came up in the background check because Baskin-Robbins always finds out. They always know. I don't like how he's like, I have so much power being your boss. It made me feel powerful. Like, that's fucking weird. Like, that's that's definitely an Edgar Wright bit. I don't even know how to respond to stuff like that sometimes. There are frequently scenes in these films where I'm like, what the frig did you decide to spend a whole minute of this very limited screen time devoting to this thing? So freaking weird. That brings us to Luis's finally getting what he wants and convincing Scott to join this heist. But 
I kind of feel this is the first time the movie falls apart in a really direct way. This is the dumbest motherfucking heist in the world. You know, I think this is one of the things that made it over from the original draft. Edgar Wright had described it as wanting to have there be sort of Machiavellian, you know, spy versus spy elements of these scheming back and forth. And I think that's part of where it turns out that this heist was actually a honey trap set by Hank Pym all along because he wanted to lure in Scott Lang specifically. How did he know who Scott Lang was and want to lure him in specifically? And like, it's just a little too complicated without any good reasons as to why they would do it this way. And Scott is shown as so brilliant and so clever. And it does become a little bit difficult to believe that somebody with his skills couldn't get work as a white hat or something. I understand that it is truly – but this is a world where prison seems to have been an adorable place to be for two yeah. minutes of the film. So there's setups and there's things about this that just kind of don't come together for me. And when he's like, oh, I sold the motorcycle jacket anyway, like he just – Yeah, he takes it and he starts playing with it. And, you know, that's the thing. We see how brilliant he is because he's able to figure out how to hack into this suit system and make it work. He's that smart. I like the sequence of him shrinking and growing. I think the fact that there's a rave that lives downstairs from them is so fucking stupid. I don't know what draft that came from. They clearly just wanted to have Ant-Man at small size running through a disco for some reason and – I don't know. Maybe it was always there, and it's just a really weird fucking idea. Who will ever know? Who will ever know indeed? But then we get to the the prison stuff. Like, he gets rearrested. I, I understand, but so many of the conventions don't really fit this film. Yeah, he, he escapes jail with the ants, and I gotta say, at that sequence, I really saw where it would not have been a good idea to put this film out at the same time as Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. It was the first friggin thing i thought was oh the giant ant from that movie i did enjoy getting the damn ant scott yeah i really i have to say i loved all of the stuff of hank talking to scott through the uh, earpiece in the suit i thought that was a really good organic way to keep the story moving along and to create a bond between the characters i really feel like it's just the first 40 minutes of this movie where we're like okay enough we just want the characters to be together and the excuse for how they get there is so fucking flimsy anyway that we just want to bypass it. Right, because the movie does start to feel a little bit like the final finale is not the finale to the movie that the beginning. There's like sort of weird layers where stuff's going to, I don't know, we're going to get to it in a second. So once our happy team is all finally united and turned into, you know, Team Ant-Man, there is so much exposition all at once. It It's almost like the team working on the movie needed this scene to understand the plot of the film yeah within five minutes we get explanations as to why hope and hank are working together again what hank's goals are what he's afraid cross is up to sort of how he plans on going back up against cross like there's a lot and it's all within five minutes it was really funny because you actually missed one line this past watch through that led to you being like, oh, wait, where did that come from later on? And I had to be like, no, that was in that humongous block of dialogue mm. that they expected you to memorize everything from. They mentioned that overexposure to pim particles can mess with your brains. And then they don't bring it up again for like 40 minutes. It's not until later in the confrontation scene when Hope is like, it's the particles altering your brain chemistry. I literally was like, wait, what? What? Because I missed it during the dining room tea scene. So beyond that, I... There was nothing else to tell me. I just thought he was annoying. 
Speaking of annoying, we do get that dumb little tiny sheep scene yeah. here. It's so dramatic, the tiny little sheep scene where he flicks the tiny little sheep. I can't even bring it up anymore. Back to the info dump. They tell us everything there is to know in this like 10 minutes of the movie. We find out about, I think, things about Janet and we find out about the regulator. And it's just like 15 minutes of movie that has just about Everything you can possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 15, 20 minutes from when he wakes up at Pim's house to when we get to him facing off against the Falcon and it's all training montage or backstory on Janet, like you said. Something that's really funny is that Peyton Reed chose the actress that he did for the Janet stand-in because he loved that her eyes were very reminiscent of Michelle Pfeiffer and Michelle Pfeiffer was his dream casting for Janet Van Dyne. Now, did Peyton Reed get to direct Ant-Man and Wasp? Yes, Peyton Reed returned three years later to direct Ant-Man and the Wasp. And you know what? Maybe that's even part of where I have trouble remembering where one film ends and one film begins. They share a director. They share 73 of the same writers. Yeah. Most of the cast is in common. Even the characters and cast that aren't in this film are secretly in this film with stand-ins designed to make you think they're in this film. Yeah, pretty much. I think one of the things that made the training montage so great was that Hope is shown to be just as much bite as Bark. Too frequently we see these characters that are like, I'm the hardened bitch and I'll always take the shot. And then you see them with their gun in their hand and they're like, I can't do it. Nah, Hope punches him in the fucking face. Yeah, she gets it. She really does. I frequently feel like a character assaulting someone that they're supposed to care about or at least be in league with is poor writing, but here I feel like the character of Hope knows her punch. It sounds so dumb, but it's a weird, specific thing that doesn't bother me. It would be the same thing as if Cap was teaching somebody a lesson by giving them a little punch, whereas I feel like Tony's going to hit you with a repulsor ray. I feel like, you know, other than Black Widow and Cap, I don't know too many characters that would exactly control their punch exactly right. Thor might underestimate because he's a god. Tony's always going to overdo it because he's Tony. But I feel like when Hope punched Scott, I got so much of her character in the control of her punch, in the delivery. It's a weird moment to say that it's, you know, the punch heard around the Marvel Cinematic Universe for me. But it really is part of where my beyond my normal love of the Wasp, my excitement to see Hope become the Wasp, really started to take seed. That's really cool. I like that. I like that a lot. I like the next sequence that we go into as well, the introduction of Falcon into this film. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, it was a later edition when they were just looking for a character to have Scott Lang as Ant-Man go up against. Yeah, and we didn't even know that Sam Wilson was going to be in this movie until literally the month it was released, I think. Yeah, the choice of Falcon was so great because it really did help support a lot of the decisions that were made in Age of Ultron, giving us Falcon a character who we had come to care about earlier in Captain America. It all felt very good. And knowing that Falcon is kind of the guy that brings in Ant-Man, and I just, okay, I'm not about to blow anybody's mind with information that no one's ever noticed before, but there are way too many bugs and birds running around the Marvel Universe at any given time. Yeah, there's Falcon and Vulture and Spider-Man and Ant-Man and Black Widow, and it's a lot of bird and ant people. I feel like I'm at Disney's goddamn Animal Kingdom watching these movies sometimes. It is tough to be a bug. 
It is tough to be a bug, except when you're an Ant-Man, because I feel like these sequences with all these different ants, like I kind of walked away being like, wow, ants are fascinating. I really enjoyed all of Scott coming into loving being Ant-Man, because that's actually one of the things that sets Scott apart from Hawkeye, maybe. I don't think Hawkeye loves being Hawkeye. I think Hawkeye is fucking Hawkeye, and he deals with it. But Scott Lang is like, oh, I love my ants. Oh, I'm growing. Oh, I'm shrinking. Clicky, click, regulator. He's having the best time. Yeah, and I enjoy watching him do it. That's one of the things about loving Paul Rudd in the role of Scott Lang. And Michael Douglas, too, even has a lot of fun in this role. And that makes it a lot easier to enjoy. You know, these, this is a great cast. They're just some very talented actors. I was just standing there watching the scene where Scott Lang is trying to figure out how to control the ants and... You know, it could seem silly, but the way that Paul Rudd, Evangeline Lilly, and Michael Douglas are all taking the performances and the scene seriously, you really find yourself falling into it. And I actually really love watching Scott Lang come to love being Ant-Man in a movie called Ant-Man that I don't love, but I'm still left wondering, why the fuck Scott Lang? Why Scott Lang? Why Scott Lang? You would have rather Hank Pym? Hank Pym has this whole, it has to be Scott thing. And this part, don't get me wrong, I do see it. I do understand where he's coming from. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This guy is able to do this. He's able to work with the ants, and he gets so capable at it so quickly. But how did he know this guy would be the guy to do it? I I definitely see where you're coming from with that. We are going to do an episode where we watch Newsfront with Christine Everhart, and we will see a little bit of the backstory that they filmed and put in videos on YouTube. So maybe that shed some light on why Scott was the ideal candidate for this. I'm not sure, but it definitely bugged me a lot too. Did it bug you then? Yes. You had made a comment while we were watching the film that you felt the only reason that Ant-Man was able to get the better of Falcon was because Falcon just isn't used to fighting superhuman enemies. He is a soldier. He has training. I kind of feel like it's pretty difficult to beat an Ant-Man. The guy can get so small, and his punch is like a bullet. You could shatter a dude with that punch. I do feel like an Ant-Man or a Wasp is an unfairly strong challenger to take on. I definitely agree. I think the only difference is that Sam Wilson does have military training, and Scott Lang kind of is just a dude. The best we saw is that he can beat up an inmate named Peaches. But we did see that he's cunning, clever, and capable of pulling off ridiculous heists with no real purpose. Yeah, that's true. Now, I understand that he has to break into the Avengers lab for something in specific. Okay, great. I think it's a little ridiculous that it's just kind of hanging out there, and this whole thing comes together the way it does. Ultimately, I do feel like a number of the heists are just kind of buying time. Hey, you know what's funny? The next time we're going to see this Avengers facility outside of either Civil War or an Avengers movie is going to be Spider-Man again. You know, the bug stuff doesn't bug me at all, but it is really interesting how closely related they kind of are. It is all very connected. What a very tangled web they weave. And on that venomous note, let's talk about Cross showing back up. Quite Cross. Yeah, you know, again, he's he's really annoying and creepy, but unless they're really highlighting the fact that he's got his brain chemistry being altered by the cross particles, as they are dubbed by the people who wrote this, because they're not technically pim particles, but like if his brain chemistry is being warped, 
he just comes off like a normal extra creeper, not, you know, a chemically dosed one. And he doesn't even make for a terribly engaging villain. One of the things is Scott Lang is charming and funny and charismatic, and Cross is not. Cross is boring and dark and kind of super awkwardly into hope. And, like, really whiny man-childy and very, you know, my daddy rejected me and now I'm gonna bang my pseudo-sister and take his company from him. It's creepy and gross and weird and I would have thought beneath us by this point, but we also haven't gotten to my daddy as a planet and killed my mommy, so whatever. Speaking of family issues, it does actually almost take too long to get back to the criminal gang and to Scott's daughter. Like, I almost forgot those were part of this film. As a matter of fact, the criminals, the the ex-con units, are used in that beginning and here. And other than that, I don't remember how I thought Luis was, like, the breakout star of this film. He's in, like, 25 fucking minutes. I think it's the same way that Fonzie was the breakout at first, even though he wasn't in a ton right away. He's a great character and stands out that much. And it especially then is glaringly obvious that one of the last additions to be made is Luis's fun little tangent rambles that everybody loves so much. Which, they're actually just kind of how I think, so it was really fun seeing those on screen. Nice. I enjoy that they bring in the ex-con group. I think it's a little weird that Wasp is like, oh yeah, I had to give him a Zanny, and then Hank talked to them about how pin particles work, but I get it. They just had their worlds blown apart. They know they live in a superhero world, but the guy that was sleeping on their couch can suddenly shrink down to the size of an ant, and that's kind of a little different. And even though they are used to heists, this is the first heist against this level that they're going up again. This is pretty big for all of them, yeah. The heist itself kind of blurs in a lot of ways. It's a lot of back and forth. There's a couple of cute moments. There's the will he or won't he get the encryption done so that he can take care of the laser and Scott will survive not getting shot by a laser. There's the Louis singing small world bit. Like there's cute Mm. things, but it's actually hard to talk about these heists without doing like a plot by plot breakdown. Were there any standout moments for you, Kevo? Nothing especially special. It was a fun ride the whole time, to be honest. There was a lot of stupid stuff. Dave describing how Crown Vicks are the most common car for undercover cops. Really inorganic and dumb. Oh my god, the Vance Horn being La Cucaracha. Uh, Like, what criminal would do that? Maybe I just don't know enough about, like, criminal behavior, but that doesn't seem like it's a very good idea. No, no, I'm sure every criminal's first go-to is let me attract as much attention to myself as possible. Yeah, right? Something that really bugs me is that from start to finish, well, from start to when Scott is trapped instead of getting away with the suit, is about 11 minutes, and so that makes this like an 11-minute heist action sequence where we're hoping Scott's going to get there in time, and then it's a trap all along. That's kind of annoying, especially when we know that Scott's going to have to get out anyway, so you just made us invest all this time for it to fall through pretty horribly. And then it's just sort of like thing after thing of... Ah, raise the stakes. They survive. But then there's something worse than raise the stakes. Then they survive. Then there's something worse. I think the height of that is after they blow up Cross's labs. By the way, they blow up Cross's lab after Pim gets shot. A lot happens in a very short period of time. Implode. Implode the lab. They absolutely do implode the lab with the keychain. Yeah, they bring out that keychain with the tank on it. So... After all that, the 
Cross Particle is kind of stopped, I guess, but now we have Cross as Yellow Jacket. This is Iron Monger levels of, isn't it ironic, Scotty? Like, I don't enjoy anything about the fight against Yellow Jacket. I enjoy the trappings of the fight against Yellow Jacket. Like, the giant Thomas the Train, the giant ant, and of course, who wouldn't love all of the stuff on the little train set falling over as it's going around. It created a really dynamic chase sequence without drawing it out. Yeah, it was really cute, really fun, especially if you're going to have these heroes and villains that can shrink down to that size. You should be playing with stuff like that. Similar to how I enjoyed Scott playing around with the suit earlier on in the film. Sequences like that are just really enjoyable to watch. You know, we were all kids at one point playing with action figures, imagining what it was like to be at that size. And we're at a point in cinematography and special effects where it's we can do those sequences really well now. And they definitely were done amazingly well. And then we get into the next sequence that is done amazingly well, the Quantum Realm. Oh man, I love the Quantum Realm stuff. I really think it's odd that it wasn't part of Edgar Wright's vision necessarily, but... I ultimately love what it gives us, and I think part of what makes Scott such a great hero is that he was willing to sacrifice himself and mess with the regulator. I think they handled a lot of that better than I expected. And you know, one of the things about Ant-Man that I came to realize when we watched it this time is it's just as much about family, parenthood, life and death as Age of Ultron is. But whereas Age of Ultron went for it in the most overdramatic sort of 30-something way, this approached it in kind of like a friend's way and made it lighter and a little bit easier to digest. Ultimately, Age of Ultron kept talking about the responsibility of parenthood and that it seemed to be to kill your kids. And and Ant-Man talks about the responsibility of being a parent and fatherhood, but it seems to be a little bit less kill your kids and a little bit more implode bad guys in front of them. Yeah, both Ant-Men definitely do that. They definitely implode their problems in front of their daughters. Good point. And next movie, they blow up the baby! So I'm really excited about that. I feel like the best part of this movie might be the final scene where Scott is with his ex-wife, her new husband, and the child that they're all eagerly going to co-parent and Paxton is like mwahaha I got rid of all your problems and Scott's like wow man thanks for breaking the law for me don't get me wrong I have a couple of problems with where this movie ends feeling kind of like look civil war doesn't happen in this movie so I know the events that set Scott's life up where it is in the next one happen after this movie but let's say you just watch the two ant-man movies it's such a bummer that scott's in this great place and even though he still has the love of this amazing family i feel like scott takes a huge step back yeah when he's under house arrest in ant-man and the wasp they at least there isn't a lot of emotional fallout from it at least except i guess from hank and hope themselves who are pissed about not being invited to the captain america party which is a little childish, but we're going to get there. We'll get, we'll get to those. Any more thoughts on Ant-Man as it closes up? I know I'm pretty annoyed about the needless Scott and Hope kiss. I enjoy both of the actors' performances as the characters, and it's one of those I-want-the-characters-to-be-happy things, but was it necessary? 
I like them as a couple, honestly, I think because she is an original character. I feel like they were able to craft a unique character that isn't just someone who can play off of Scott, but I would be interested in her story as well. And when you have two such well-defined characters in this unique experience where I can understand the connection and the desire to share a bond, I'm pretty okay with it here. I kind of don't like that the mid credit scene is the only shot we get of that goddamn wasp costume because, my God, I love the wasp. And the fact that the post credit scene is just verbatim from Civil War bothers me. Yeah, it really is. This is also probably the latest stameo of any Marvel Cinematic Universe film so far, where he plays a bartender during Louise's story. Gotta love Stanley saying, crazy, stupid, fine. That's hilarious. The precursor mention of Spider-Man with a guy who crawls up walls. That was pretty cool. Yeah, you know, again, now that it's over, I'm like, yeah, I think I liked it. And I'm like thinking back and I'm like, nope, now I'm remembering parts of it. Don't like it so much. But at the end of Ant-Man... I like Ant-Man. At the end of Ant-Man, I like the parts of Ant-Man that I like. So next up are the two seasons of Newsfront, the one that came before Ant-Man and the one that came before Civil War. I guess all I'm really looking for is maybe a little bit more in-depth into the background that they just sort of expected us to bring to the table. I'd like to know a little bit more about Scott Lang so I understand why Hank Pym is so, like, obsessed with him. Maybe he sat next to John Stamos on a plane or something. But I feel like I would be looking for Civil War's news front to maybe give me a little bit more about the Sokovia Accords. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't really know what to expect. I think it's wild that Scott Lang is going to appear in the first season. President Ellis, played by the incomparable William Sadler, appears in the second season. The entire thing is only about 23 minutes long combined, so it's probably about 11 minutes each season. I honestly don't know what to expect. The Marvel one-shots had their moments, but overall were pretty disappointing, so it's hard to say if this is going to do much for us. It's clearly not something they wanted to continue after the second season. And one more time, I just need to say, if you need dozens of tie-ins to make your project work, you need to rethink the project. These truly cannot be necessary to understanding Ant-Man because we just watched Ant-Man and understood it. All they can do is help fill in some of the places that the film showed weakness. Yeah, people rely too heavily on these outside resources. You know, there's apparently like a Cold War between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens, and I didn't really get any of that from the films. Maybe I'm stupid. Maybe it's just that they didn't really do a good enough job of filling in what this story is. If it's not in the film itself, it's it's it, you can't really rely on us getting it from somewhere else to understand the plot of a movie. It's just not fair. And until everybody's looking for that sweet, sweet movie plot to get them through to their next fix, where can everybody... I don't even know what the fuck that was. I'm so tired of talking about Ant-Man, Kevo. Where can people find you on the interwebs? Phase two is over. That's all that matters. People can find me on the interwebs at Kevo Really on either Instagram or Twitter. You can also find my art along with Nico's and the rest of our teams over at KidRiotComics.com where we produce our super cool superhero comic with a really awesome, diverse cast and some really cool, unique stories. 
Don't forget to check out our awesome Kickstarter, which is already officially funded with like two weeks to go. We're so grateful for everybody coming out and backing the Riot Badge enamel pin. Thank you all so much. You can also check out my music at facebook.com slash action duo. And you can check out our awesome other shows here on Cage Club, like X's for Podcast, where we talk about the X-Men comic book franchise along with our boyfriend Jonah and our amazing friend Kyle. And now and again, the show that got me on this network in the first place, where me and my childhood best friend Chris take a look at the Now That's What I Call Musics. Hey, and while you're at it, look at all the other shows on Cage Club, and don't forget to hop over to the Patreon and shoot some money that way and help pick what comes next. You can also check out pictures of me on Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Okay, Kevo, until we journey back to the Quantumverse, we'll see ya. Go Clovers!